Okay, we are in the book of Acts, and we're going to pick it up in verse in chapter six, Acts chapter six, verse seven. Acts chapter six, verse seven. Now the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some of them, but some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men, saying, We have heard him speak blasphemous blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, and, and, and fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Okay, so you see that, that uh, the word of God was spreading, priests were coming and becoming obedient to the faith. So this was a big deal. And it kept on increasing, so the church was building up. So we're, we're getting into tens of thousands of people here, and, and maybe more. And so it says that, that Stephen was full of grace and power in verse 8, and he was performing signs among the people. And then it talks about this synagogue. There was a synagogue called the Synagogue of the Freedmen. Some, some, some Bibles translate it the Libertines. And... and uh, uh, Actually, the, the Mishnah in this period talks about there being 490 synagogues in Jerusalem at the turn of the century. So there were 490 synagogues. One of the synagogues was called the Synagogue of the Freedmen and included Cyrenians and Alexandrians, so that is North Africans, and some from Cilicia and Asia, that's Asia Minor, Minor or our present-day Turkey. Because it includes Cilicia, there's a good chance that, that uh, remember, these, these were, Stephen was himself a, 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 uh, a Greek, from, so he was part of the diaspora, start, part of the diasporan Jews that had come back to the land. He ends up getting saved, comes to know Jesus as his Messiah. So it is natural that he would be speaking in the synagogue in which he's a very part. So that is probably Stephen's synagogue. Not only that, since it's a synagogue and it has members in it from Cilicia, remember, that's, that's uh, where Paul is from. And so there's a good chance that Paul himself was from that synagogue. Now, we don't know for sure, but we do know that Paul was a part of the, the, the ultimate condemnation and stoning of, of uh, uh, Stephen. He was there holding the robes. Uh, but he may well have been a part of that synagogue. And even to this day, if, if you go to a synagogue, if you're a Jew, you go to a synagogue here in, in, uh, uh, in Houston, if it's an Orthodox synagogue, when the rabbi speaks 
any man there, any man there can get up and speak and, and, and say a few words or give their thoughts. And I've been in, in synagogues here and, and the rabbi shares and then men, you know, will, 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 you know, speak their comments openly. You know, these are my thoughts on the passage and then the rabbi will comment on that. So for a man to stand up in a synagogue and speak is not unusual at all. And we see actually that same pattern happened with Jesus. Remember, Jesus would get up and he would read a portion in the synagogue and many people would thought it was really quite amazing until then Jesus would start elaborating on that portion and they would feel condemned and they would take him out, want to take him out and stone him. But it was not unusual for a man to stand up and speak. And so when he was speaking, he was of course now talking about Jesus being the Messiah, but in verse 10 it says, in verse 9 it says that they rose up and they argued with Stephen. But in verse 10, they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So there were two things that Stephen had. He had this enormous wisdom, and he had a spirit that he was speaking with that they didn't have. I remember speaking once with a a, a Jewish man before I went to, to go to Israel to give a number of lectures he was giving me some background on some of the mindset of the people who, who I might confront there. And he said, I'm not worried about you because somebody who has the Spirit of God with them will always defeat in an argument those who don't have the Spirit. And this is exactly what we see here. He had wisdom, so he had an understanding of the, spirit, uh, of the Scriptures, but he also had the Spirit of God with him. And they were unable to cope even in this synagogue, the religious leaders in these, this, that synagogue were unable to cope with Stephen, who formerly was, was just a deacon in the church. But he had a spirit. When the Spirit of God fills our hearts, it gives, this, He Himself gives us wisdom that we, we don't deserve. But it gives us wisdom far beyond and insight far beyond what people can get from the Scriptures who don't have the Spirit. It is the Spirit who takes this Word of God and illuminates it for us. And they couldn't get past this with Stephen. So in verse 11, they secretly induced men, saying, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they had to now use false witnesses. There was no way of combating Stephen just based on the argument itself. Here was a guy who understood the Scriptures and could use the Scriptures in a way that they had never dealt with before. And we see that same pattern with Jesus. There's occasions in, 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 uh, in uh, the Scripture, in, in the Gospels, where it says of Jesus that they finally stopped asking Him questions. No man would argue with Him anymore. It had gotten too much. Jesus' wisdom was too great for them. Now we see the same thing, not just with Jesus, but with Stephen, who's just a layman. He's not one of the apostles. But God has so filled him and given him ability. So the ability that we have in the Spirit far exceeds something that you're going to get from a college class in Christianity, for example. The Spirit's illumination of the Word is far greater than what you can get from just an academic course. And so they had to secretly induce men, either it was with a bribe or with a threat, or, or by, by some sort of collusion, they induced men, witnesses, false witnesses, to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Now, so this is the first charge. This is the charge these men use 
to get the crowd stirred up, to get the synagogue stirred up against them. But remember, to have a charge of blasphemy against God to stand, we saw, we saw this, we studied this in the, book of, in the Gospel of Matthew, to get that charge to stand, they must have heard, they will have had to have heard uh, uh, Stephen say the name of God, Y-H-V-H, this Yahweh, this name of God. Without that, the Mishnah would never allow them to use that charge of blasphemy against God. They had to use the name of God. And so they could never condemn Jesus based on that, and they could never condemn condemn Stephen based on this, so you'll see their charges ultimately change a few verses down when they make the charge to the council. But the charge to get the the crowd stirred up is they say he speaks blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. So, now that it says the elders and the scribes, you, you recall that the first two persecutions against the church were by the Sadducees. Those were the priestly class. But the Pharisees were not part of that. The Pharisees are the elders and the scribes. So now this third persecution is coming from the Pharisees. And that's why the issue here is not the resurrection. Formerly, the issue with the Sadducees was the resurrection. Because the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. And here there was a preaching of the resurrection. But now the issue is not the resurrection. You see, there's no charge here based on a resurrection of a man named Jesus. There's other charges that are being brought. This is now the Pharisees are getting involved in the persecution of the church. So the third persecution comes from the Pharisees, the elders and the scribes being Pharisees. And they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. So the Sanhedrin is now convened. They drag him away to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin has 71 members, one of them being the high priest. But not all of the council had to be there, a, a, a certain portion of the council, maybe it was more than half or two-thirds, something like that, had to be there. And they put forward the false witnesses who said, the man incessantly speaks against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus will destroy, will destroy that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting on the council saw his face like the face of an angel. So, you see that the charges now have changed. There is no charge of blasphemy before the council. Because for blasphemy, they're going to have to have witnesses say, we heard him say the name Yahweh. But... That is never spoken here. So now the charge has changed from blasphemy against Moses and against God to this man speaks incessantly against this, this holy place and the law. So the temple and the law. So it shifted from blasphemy against Moses and God, which was the first charge. So you see that even here, the false witnesses couldn't even keep their testimony straight from the time they get the crowd upset to the time they get before the council. Already the accusations have changed. Now the accusation is against this holy place and against the law. And you will see that, that, that Stephen at the end of chapter, chapter 7 gets stoned to death. Well, how could he get killed if we knew from the time of Jesus 
that the, the Sanhedrin no longer had the ability to pronounce capital punishment. And that's why they had to turn Jesus over to the Romans. Jesus, the, the capital punishment had been removed from the council uh, that, that, that very year that Jesus was crucified. And that was God-ordained because when they had lost that ability, then he was going to get crucified which was what the prophecy said. Had the council wanted to kill him, they would have stoned Jesus. But now you see that, that uh, the charge is against this holy place, meaning the temple and the law. There are two instances why that it's reported why the council may have been able to kill Stephen, to stone him, if capital punishment had been removed from them. One was the capital punishment was allowed to remain if, if there was an attack on their temple. They could protect their temple. The other was that in the year 36 AD, Josephus reports that Pontius Pilate was replaced by another procurator, and that was Vitellus. And Vitellus came about a year after Pontius Pilate was replaced. So there was a year there where there was no procurator in, in, in Judea. And so during that one year, they may have taken matters into their own hands because there wasn't a procurator. So, one of those two instances, either because they used the legitimacy of their defending their temple, or because there was no procurator, they took the matter into their own hands, they had pronounced that this man should be killed. But you see here that the charges now change, and probably they had some basis for this. Because it's, there's a good chance that Stephen was quoting Jesus. Jesus talked about how the temple would be destroyed. He said, when you see the army surrounding this place, know that this place is going to be destroyed. When he proclaimed upon them in Matthew chapter 12, the unpardonable sin, and he was proclaiming that there would be destruction on this temple, that it may well have been that Stephen was talking about that because it was a big issue, a big issue to the believers in that generation, because they knew destruction was coming. And in fact, that there were, it is said that no Messianic Jews died in the destruction of the temple, because they saw the armies coming around, the armies created a siege, and then backed off for a short period of a few months. During that back off, the Messianic Jews left, they went across the river to Perea, and then the siege came on again. And so... So, what we see here is that he may well have been saying this. And, and against the customs that Moses handed down to us, yeah, he may have been saying that the law is null and void anymore. Jesus talked about this. So, there was some basis to their charges now. So, what they did is they took some charge that may have some basis here before the council. But what I find really interesting is this verse 15. And fixing their gaze on him... All who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Now, this is a man who is being falsely brought up before a council and being dragged before a council. So, this man was physically dragged by a mob before a council and you have false witnesses coming forward saying things that are distorting Stephen's words. They had claimed some charges to a mob to get the mob going, and now there's other charges being claimed. When a person is falsely accused, either they become angry or they become dejected. And you watch a man who, who, who may be falsely accused. He's going to become angry and fight these charges or he's going to become dejected. 
and he's just going to curl up. It says Stephen was sitting there and he had the face like an angel. It says that these men were there gnashing their teeth at him and angry. He had just been dragged in. Imagine being physically dragged in by a mob who is the, the mob from a synagogue where you worshipped. So imagine being dragged you, you, you know, across West University by members of West University Baptist Church. And they're falsely accusing you of something. You're not going to be sitting there like an angel. But God was so much on this person that He wasn't lashing out at them in anger, nor was He sitting there dejected. They just saw Him there with a face like an angel. The Holy Spirit was all over this guy. And this is exactly what Jesus prophesied. He says, when they take you, they will drag you before courts, they will drag you before synagogues. Don't worry about what you're going to say. I'll fill you with what you need at that time. And you can see that, that again, Stephen prepared no law brief here or anything. God begins to fill him. And then Stephen starts to make his defense. So, so you see in, in Acts chapter 7, reading from verse 1, the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him moved to this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And then he goes on. And this is the longest discourse in this entire book. So this, nearly this entire chapter... This long chapter, so you've got, you've got uh, uh, 53 verses here. So, so uh, in, in, from verse 2 to verse 53, so 52 verses where Stephen is just speaking. And so the high priest says, are these accusations so? And so now he's able to make his defense. So he's before the council, the accused could always make a defense. And so rather than take these on directly, what he does is he starts to go into a history of the Jews and, and, and from Abraham just maps this thing out. And so I've highlighted certain points here, and I'll just mention them rather than to go through this entire discourse, which is the summary of the Old Testament. What he does, you'll find that there's places where he does what's called telescoping, where he condenses a story. And if you just take it directly, you will say he got the facts all wrong. Or you could say he was just condensing a story. And so you have a story where multiple things happen and you condense it into, in, in, into one incident. And then there are other things that he brings up that are really quite interesting if we think about them. And let me, let me show you some of these. So, for example, in verse 14 it says, Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob his father and all his relatives to come to him. <clears throat> 75 persons in all. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, he says 75 persons in all 
went down to Egypt. So, so when there was a, remember there was a famine in the land, and, and so Joseph had already been sold into slavery, he ends up becoming, becoming second in command in, in Egypt, and Jacob ends up moving to Egypt. And that was the beginning of, of the 430 years that were going to be spent in Egypt. And in fact, when, 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 uh, when Stephen speaks of the number of years, he says in verse 6, 400 years in Egypt. There's one reference in the Old Testament that says 400 years. There's two other references in the Old Testament that say 430 years. And when Paul quotes it in the New Testament, Paul talks of 430 years. Stephen was taking the approximation number that is also the approximation number that's used in the Old Testament. But when the people go down, Stephen here says that it was 75 people in all. If you look in Genesis chapter 46, verse 27, it says 70 people. Not 75. It says 70. And in fact, for a time, there were Jews who would say, you see, the New Testament is inaccurate because the Masoretic text, the text that has been used for our Old Testament. So there is a, there's a Masoretic text that is the Jewish scriptures that are used today in synagogues. That translation was made in about 1000 A.D. That is the translation from which our Old Testament comes, primarily from the Masoretic text. It says 70 people went down. Why does it say 75 here? Well, maybe, maybe Stephen was under pressure here. Stephen had not prepared a brief, right? And he's summarizing, and maybe he got a fact wrong. The Bible does not say that he has to have every fact right for it to be inspired. All we know by inspiration is this is exactly what Stephen said. Luke is reporting here exactly what Stephen said. Stephen said 75 people. That is what Luke reported. Inspiration guarantees us the accuracy of what was said. It doesn't guarantee us the accuracy of every detail of Stephen's speech. Because the speech was just Stephen ad-libbing. This wasn't, remember, this is a historical book. This wasn't some epistle where God is giving instruction through a human being. Or, here's two other things that actually make this quite interesting. Remember what I said. We use the Masoretic text for our Old Testament, which was a translation, a Jewish Hebrew translation that was made in about 1000 A.D. There's another translation of the Bible, which is the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Old Testament translated into Greek. The Septuagint is dated 250 B.C. So 250 B.C., the Septuagint was written. All right? Remember, Stephen didn't have the Masoretic text. That came in 1000 A.D. That's our text for the Old Testament. Stephen may have been using the Greek old, the translation into Greek. The Masoretic text, uh, the, the Septuagint, I'm sorry, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, was translated into Greek from some Hebrew text that must have been 250 B.C. or older, right? Must have been from 250 B.C. or older. There's also another text that's called the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the 1930s. So nobody had messed with these things. They were found in the, 19, in the 1930s. So this is in recent history. The Dead Sea Scrolls are dated from 100 B.C. to 100 A.D. They were written in that time period. Interestingly enough, the Septuagint says it was 75 people. The Dead Sea Scrolls say it was 75 people. So when they refer to the book of Genesis, they use the number 75. 
the Masoretic text says 70. So in fact, our New Testament here, what Stephen was using was more accurate than the Masoretic text. Don't you find that fascinating? He quotes a number that the Septuagint from 250 B.C. uses. He also quotes a number that was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, 75. Or, so that, that's another reason. Either Stephen just said it wrong because he was under pressure, or he never had the Masoretic text. He had a text that's more accurate than the text that was used for our English translation. Um, or there, there's another, uh, another way this, this could be interpreted, and that is that, that uh, uh, Joseph's sons also had children who his father Jacob saw being born. And it says they were born on Jacob's knee, meaning that Jacob was right there when they were born. And if you add in those grandsons, there were five of them. So that may have been the reason he pulls the number 75. But in any case... I think it speaks to the accuracy of what we have and also the accuracy of Luke. Luke's not going to change anything. Now, the other thing that, that goes on here is, is uh, Stephen, telesco- uh, Stephen in his story here telescopes the two calls of Abraham. There's actually two calls of Abraham in the book of Genesis. He, he merges them all together into one call of Abraham. There's another, there's another occurrence here. And, and, uh, so if you look in verse 15, And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our fathers died. From there they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. So this is actually a condensed story. It may have been this telescoping, or it may have just been inaccuracy in Stephen's speech. And Luke reported it just as it is. Because actually... Uh, Abraham did not buy anything in Shechem from, from the sons of, of Hamor. Abraham bought a, a grave in Hebron. Shechem is where Jacob was, was buried. Not, not where... where uh, um, I'm sorry, Shechem. There were two burials. Jacob was in Hebron. Joseph was in Shechem. So Joseph was buried in Shechem, but Jacob was buried in Hebron. So what he did is he took these two patriarchs and he lumped them together... And he said, and they were buried in Shechem. Well, no. One was buried in Hebron. The other was buried in Shechem. That is what is reported. And Abraham didn't buy anything in Shechem. Abraham bought, bought this grave site in Hebron. And, and uh, so what he did, either he's telescoping, he's taking some stories and condensing them, because this guy is, is, is before the council and his life is just hanging by a thread... Or he just got it wrong. I mean, how many times do I stand up here and throw out the wrong name and, and you guys realize that, okay, he, he says Philip, he meant, meant Stephen or something like that. You know, you say things, and, 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 but what we have here is the accuracy of what Luke reported. Do you think that Luke, who was this great author of the Scriptures, doesn't know that, hey, there's a little bit of mix-up. Let me just clarify this as I'm recording it. No, he doesn't clarify anything. This is exactly what Stephen said. Moreover, even when Luke transcribes this and it starts becoming part of Scripture, it stays like this. It absolutely stays like this because we know that this is exactly what Stephen said. 
So either words are telescoping or the guy just got it wrong because his life is, is hanging by a thread right here. Now, the other things that, that, uh, that are apparent throughout Stephen's lesson is that Jesus is not as prominent as we've seen in other, other uh, uh, speeches. And in fact, the name of Jesus is not even mentioned. He's not even mentioned until verse 52. And there he's only referred to as the righteous one. He doesn't even mention his name. Uh, uh, because, uh, so, because the issue here, the charges here, are concerning, uh, c- concerning the, the temple and concerning the, the laws that were handed down. Also, there's no mention of the resurrection. So all the former uh, defenses of the apostles mention the resurrection. Here there's no defense of the resurrection because resurrection is not an issue with the Pharisees. It was a big issue with the Sadducees. Not an issue here. Uh, he, was, he was accused of disrespect to the temple and disrespect to the law. And he never specifically answered those. He never specifically answered those. He's interested in just getting the truth out. He made five specific points. One is the progress and change in God's program. So God's program started like this with Abraham. Then there was this tabernacle. Then there was this temple. And here we are now. And, and, and so he talks about there's this changing in God's program. So we have a continual change, he's saying. He says God's blessing are not tied to this city and this place. He says the original call to Abraham started out in Chaldea. And he was speaking again in Egypt. It's not tied to this land. This is part of his argument. Part of his argument is Israel has consistently rejected God's plan and God's messengers. You'll see that throughout this. Consistently, Israel has rejected God's plan and God's messengers. The rejected one, like Joseph, often becomes the savior of the rejectors. The rejected one, like Joseph, becomes the savior of the rejectors. Moses, the one who was rejected from Egypt, comes back as the savior. And then he relates this now to the righteous one. So that's another one of his lessons. Um, so, so, and, and then again, he refers to the Messiah as the righteous one in verse 52. Now, everything is is fine. They're listening to this. They're listening to a story until you get to verse 51, and then the trouble starts. In verse 51, he says, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one I'm sorry. They kill those who previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels, yet did not keep it. So in verse 51 he says, You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And so this is exactly the same words that Jesus was sharing with them. Jesus talked about how they had persecuted all the prophets. They didn't kill them all, but they persecuted them all. They killed their fair share, but they persecuted all of them. And so Stephen says this, and this is where the trouble starts. So he says, you men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. This stiff-necked, this is a terminology that God used in the Old Testament for Israel. 
So he's pulling that same terminology. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit and doing just as your fathers did. You're doing exactly like your fathers did. Look in in Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew chapter 23, we see some of the things that Jesus had said to them. And we'll start reading from verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So look what the people said. The people of that generation were saying, if we had been there in that generation, we wouldn't have partaken of the persecution of the prophets. And so what Stephen is saying, you say you wouldn't have partaken, but you killed the righteous one. And here I'm coming and talking about God and you're coming against me. You're doing exactly like your fathers did. Which one of the prophets didn't they persecute? Go ahead, give me a list. You, you know the prophets. Tell me which one of them Israel didn't persecute. There are none. They persecuted them all. And so, what happens is, we think, this is a common thing for people, me, I think, oh, I would never do such a thing. Not me. Only to find that I do that very thing. This is the nature of people, the the very thing that we think we would never do, we find ourselves doing. And so there's this, all this, this trouble. We end up doing exactly the same thing. And you know, these men didn't wake up in the morning and say, Wow, oh wow, just waking up. I, I think I'll go persecute some prophets today. Yeah, it seems like a good day to persecute some prophets. No, they didn't do that. Nobody intended on persecuting prophets that day. We don't wake up intending to do great wrong. In fact, it was a big deal in Israel realizing they had persecuted all these prophets and they grew up thinking, we would never do that. Far be it from me to ever persecute a prophet. You you know, to us, we think, okay, this is an interesting teaching. They grew up with this every day. Every day in their synagogues, it was in their face. Look what Israel has done in persecuting the prophets. We would never do that. I can't believe that our fathers did that. And in fact, you know this big deal that, that, that uh, Protestants hate Catholics talking about, you know, calling men father? You know, I counted the number of times that Peter refers to father in this chapter. Uh, I'm sorry, Stephen refers to father in this chapter. Not meaning father God. Like he, he turns to the council in Acts chapter 7, verse 2. And he says, here, brethren and fathers. So he's referring to the council member and his brethren, to the council member as fathers. Well, doesn't Stephen know Jesus' teaching called no man father? Terrible, Stephen, terrible. Maybe we don't understand the terminology father. But anyway, it's interesting to see. And here, Stephen is about to be welcomed by Jesus into heaven. If it was, you know, such a cardinal sin, I mean, it may have been dealt with. Anyway. So, 
the very thing that they didn't want to do, that they thought they would never do, that they would even say we would never do that, they themselves end up doing with Jesus, end up doing persecuting the, the, the apostles, and now Stephen. Turn to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, verse, verse 1. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Wow! It says if you have a brother who's caught in some spiritual temptation, some spiritual sin, go ahead and in a spirit of gentleness, not in a spirit of condemnation, but in a spirit of gentleness, I want you to go and, and restore that brother to his position. You know, go and talk to him in a spirit of gentleness. Restore such a one in gentleness. But look to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So l- look at the admonition of Paul. He says that when you go to correct a brother, you've got to look to yourself just to make sure that you too are not tempted. Did you know that the, that the problem that I have, the problems that I have, I see so very clearly in others? And it bothers me. He's got that problem. The guy's got that problem. It's a terrible problem. It's the very problem I have. The very thing I struggle with is the thing that I see in my brother most vividly. The very thing that I struggle with. And that's why Jesus says, you know, you you want to take the speck out of your brother's eye, you've got a log in your own. So remember that, that it may be that we struggle with the same thing. Now maybe we struggle with the same thing in our mind, but the brother has actually executed that thing. Paul says, be careful. Go ahead and restore such a one, but be careful. Look to yourself that it doesn't come upon you as well. So when you go, say, God, have mercy on me that I don't fall into this. You know, when I hear folks say, I don't know how that guy can do that. That's just terrible. Just terrible. I would never do such a thing. I think, just watch out. Say, God, protect me from doing such a thing. There's no problem with going and restoring a brother who's gone into trouble, but Paul says, look to yourself. And so this is what Stephen is saying, the very thing that you didn't want to do is the very thing that you're really doing. You're about to do it. You're about to kill the prophets right now. You're about to do it. The thing that you grew up with, thinking, how could they have done it? You talk with a man who has fallen into adultery and just beating his breast thinking, how could I have destroyed my life, my marriage like this? And ask him, did you intend on doing this when you got married? No, never, never. I don't know how I could have been so blind as to walk into this. Verse 2 of Galatians chapter 6. Bear one another's burdens, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. If 
The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So look, in verse 8, he says, he says uh, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. You know, as I, as I read those verses, this is the thing that, that wrenches my heart when I see young people in the university and I see decisions that some of them make, lifestyles that some of them choose, and, you know, some people say, well, you know, lifestyle is, is an individual choice. That's their business. Well, lifestyle may be, may be their individual choice, but that ends up affecting the entire community. For those who sow, for, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. When you have an individual who takes and says, you know, this is what I want to do, this is what's good for me, I'm going to do it, this is what makes my flesh feel good. I know the end of what's coming. It is going to bring corruption to that body, corruption to that individual, corruption to their family. But if you sow, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. If we take this word, this book, and so this book into our hearts, it reaps eternal life. And that eternal life blesses people around us. If we take and sow to our own flesh, and not just us, anybody. And when I see decisions, they're totally self-centered and thinking, this is what I'm going to do. And, you know, whatever the Bible says, that's the Bible. This is my choice. I know that the outcome is corruption on that body. Their body will waste away physically emotionally and spiritually because of those choices. There are choices that the leaders of that council made. Choices to go and, and Stephen is crying out, don't you see? You're doing the very thing that's going to destroy you. The very thing that destroyed your fathers you were about to do. The very thing that got them deported to Babylon for 70 years. You're doing the very thing. Don't you see, you're doing the very thing that's going to kill you. You moved in with this guy. Don't you realize how much it's going to destroy you? And I look at these, these young women and I think, what are you doing? What are you doing? I can't say anything. This is their business. They live with who they want to live with. But I know in my heart what it's about to do to them. Because it will reap corruption in their lives. When we sow to the flesh, go ahead, sow to the flesh, go ahead. It will reap corruption. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. But if you sow spiritual things, and if it says, don't grow weary in doing good, especially to the household of faith, when you do good to another and say, because I am a Christian, I will do this. 
I will manifest this good. This brings eternal life into your life and it blesses your family to come, your children to come, and there's all this blessing that abounds. You sow to the flesh and it will reap corruption in the life, not just your life, but in the lives of people around you, your family, and your family to come. Your future spouse, your future children will be corrupted because of the decisions you make. You sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. These the very same principles that are coming forth. We don't have before us the opportunity to, to persecute a prophet. But we have opportunities all the time around us. And Stephen is saying, don't blow it. Don't blow it now. The very things that you said you would never do, you're doing. Don't blow it, he says. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for the truth of Your Word. That it is Your Word that keeps us walking in the right way. It is Your Word that keeps us sowing to the Spirit that will reap eternal life. Father, thank You for the accuracy of Your Word. For the truth of the Scriptures that are here. Thank You, my Father. Thank You, my Lord God, for the truth of the Scriptures that are here. Thank You. Father, You are so good. You are so good to us. And Father, I pray for these young people that they would make decisions that would bring life indeed upon them. Father, that You would keep them from going the wrong way, the way that will destroy them, the way that will corrupt them. Father, I pray for Your grace to be showered in upon them. And Father, I commit this to You. Pour out, Father. Pour out more power from on high. In the name of Jesus, Amen.